Hello, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm the host, as usual, Ian Lewins, one of the consultants in the Children's Emergency Department uh, in Derby. And I'm very pleased to be joined tonight tonight by uh, Dr. Ian Wacone, who's a consultant paediatrician from Birmingham and is also the edition editor for uh, Education and Practice, the edition of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Uh, good evening, Ian. How are you? Good evening. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm as, as, you, as I've said, I'm on call. So, hey, let's hope we get through this. Yes, we'll see what happens. Um, and we thought we'd talk, uh, it's that time of year, it's November in the UK, it's, it's winter is nearly here with us. Um, we thought we'd talk a bit about bronchiolitis. So, well, let's take things very much back to basics for, the, for those sort of new to paediatrics. What do we mean by bronchiolitis? Okay, well, um, obviously, if you, were a, if you were a histopathologist, you'd say it's itis of your bronchioles, so inflammation of your small airways. But of course, that implies that I would get bronchiolitis, um, and I don't. Uh, I get probably get itis of my small airways, but I don't get the same symptom set. And what we mean is a cluster of symptom sets that's um, actually very clear to anybody who's spent any time in an emergency department or working with children or on the wards with children at this time of year, which is a presentation of a viral illness, runny nose, um, generally a miserable child who um, parents might say is off the feeds, uh, is um, uh, is crying a lot, perhaps a little bit of wheeze, quite a lot of cough. Um, and then when you examine them, they've got a cluster of features of increased respiratory effort. So that could be uh, tachypnea, fast breathing, could be um, intercostal, subcostal, sternal recession, all of those various different things. Um so, uh, and you know, th- this time of year, we get very familiar with these children. They sort of get diagnosed almost as they walk through the door with well, a wet cough. And, well, right. um, it, gets, it gets to the point for me where some usually, um, usually there's an evening, some uh, there's usually a, a day sometime in December where I listen to a child's chest, can't hear crackles and think that I've probably gone deaf and then realise it's the first child without bronchiolitis that I've seen in a month and a half. Yes, that sounds about right. And um, these are typically young children, aren't they? They're typically the, the sort of under ones. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in if you were going across to the United States, you would um, technically define bronchiolitis up to two years. But in the UK, we usually stick with under one. Um, and um, I think... I think most people would recognise that if you see a child who's got who's full of virus who is say six weeks old, they're they're qualitatively quite different to a child who's eleven months old, and definitely different to a child who's twenty three months old. So so I'm I'm kind of comfortable with saying yes, they're under ones. Yeah, um, and typically in our winters, but you can see bronchiolitis throughout the year, can't you? You can, um, and any of the viruses that would give you a cough or a cold can give you bronchiolitis, and as you know, uh, you get summer colds, so yes, you can get summer bronchiolitis. Important, though, obviously, to think a lot more closely about the differential diagnosis when you're seeing a child out of season who you are concerned might have uh, bronchiolitis. You've got to think, am I missing something else? So making the diagnosis tends to be fairly straightforward. They tend to have fairly classic symptoms. And of course, the great temptation when you're seeing this snotty, wheezy child whose parents are exhausted is to want to do something. What can we do? Uh, We can be kind. 
uh, and we can be supportive. Uh, but what we mustn't do is kid the parents that we can do a whole bunch of things and manoeuvres that actually really improve things that don't. Um, and, you know, the, the temptation, of course, is to say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just try some bronchodilator. Maybe I'll give you some salbutamol. Maybe I'll give you some Atrovent. But that's not necessarily the right thing to do at all, is it? It's, uh, it's specifically not the right thing to do. Um, so uh, on two levels, for example, um, uh, there's good Cochrane review level meta-analysis evidence that uh, um, bronchodilators of any sort don't really work. Um, and there's sort of theoretical evidence that actually if you've got a child who's potentially stenting open their airway um, with a bit of with a small amount of smooth muscle muscle control, an older child with a bit of laryngomalacia, a slightly floppy airway as well, that can paradoxically worsen the child. Um, so yes, you don't want to give uh, th- these children um, bronchodilators. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced bronchodilatory, and I don't know if you've ever felt the need to have a little puff on your own nebs. But it, it, um, it, you know, it's a methoxantine. It gives you a bit of a, it, it, it kind of gets you a bit wound up. We've all looked after children who've spent a night on very high dose methoxantines um, and uh, really jittery. So it, it can make you feel pretty unpleasant as well. So yes, we should avoid be where possible. Yeah. How about then? Okay, so if we can't give bronchodilators, how about steroids because we we give steroids for things like croup and we give steroids for children who've got exacerbations of their wheeze so so how about steroids for bronchiolitis good question again unfortunately uh good evidence that it's completely useless okay so we can't give steroids we can't give bronchiolitis um how about then hypertonic saline nebulized hypertonic saline that sort of seemed to come into fashion a little while ago yeah so uh it did um and uh, i have to say that for a period i was convinced by the evidence i thought that the meta-analyses were tending to give us positive evidence um we took a pragmatic decision to remove it from our guideline at birmingham children's hospital when um nice uh the nice published its first bronchiolitis guideline must be four or five years ago now and said actually in their view the evidence was not uh positive for it and to be absolutely fair we haven't seen a significant increase in pathology and we haven't um uh, and our nurses prefer it because it's a pain giving the uh giving the um the the uh, nebulized salbutamol every um six hours and I have to say, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, you know, last time I had a cold, would I like somebody to um, uh, nebulize some seawater at me? Uh, no, I don't think so. So uh, there's a part of me that sort of intuitively agrees with this as a negative thing, but um, I, I shouldn't allow my biases to come in quite as strongly as that. Okay. Okay. So that's another no. Um, I'm sure I've seen somewhere on for the, from the American Academy of Pediatrics, they talk a bit about nebulized adrenaline for sort of severe bronchiolitis is that something that you use routinely at all or no um uh, we don't uh and i've not seen it used uh i think the thing with um i do find that evidence a little puzzling because again so cochrane seems to be slightly more in equipoise about that um the nice review of it would uh, would suggest that we shouldn't use bronchi- um uh, epinephrine adrenaline in um in uh, bronchiolitis um but i've i've often wondered whether this is something to do with the um 
if you like, the sort of the structure of practice in the US. So, for example, you are an office-based primary care pediatrician. Uh, your child rocks up with some bronchiolitis and therefore you do some maneuvers that give you a short-term improvement. So most of improvement that we're looking at is where is things like length of stay and symptom sets. Whereas if you're an office pediatrician, you're not looking at length of stay because you're not admitting the child. So it, it, I wondered whether that might be it, but we um, certainly in the UK, it's not a, it's, it's not recommended. Okay. So is there any evidence that any treatments make a difference uh so there's making a difference meaning um getting the child better fast or making a difference in terms of supporting the child so we would um i would say uh supportive therapy is the key thing um we know that there are some things that make children worse um so we know that excessive handling of the child makes the child worse we know that um uh for example something that feels intuitive um and in fact i had a fairly robust conversation with a mother uh, on the ward round just earlier about this, which is nasal suction. Um, you know, people think, all oh, right, well, I'll just suck out these this poor little mite's nostrils and um, maybe they'll be able to breathe better. But unfortunately, there's not any good evidence that that's useful. NICE recommends it only in um, the situation where you've got apneas, where the baby's stopping breathing. That's, but otherwise... Um, as I put it to my colleagues, when I've got a cough or cold, I don't really want you putting a uh, a hose pipe up in the nostrils. <laughs> Quite. Um, and in terms of, you know, routine investigations, chest x-rays, blood gases, do they have a role? Um, they have a... Uh, so, um, so routine investigations, so a, a blood gas is very tempting... And I suppose that's one of the less harmful things, although that always seems to show a slightly high lactate, which is kind of annoying because you then have to chase that down. Um, I remember a conversation many years ago with Howard Bachner, who used to be my editor in chief at uh, when I, um, at, at archives, and he talked about the fact that his guys used to do. He said, "Do you have this?" I won't do the American accent because it was terrible, and I was criticised for it earlier. But um, he said, "Do you guys have the same that we do?" Or, um, Everybody does X-rays, and they see schmutz on the X-ray, and then they have to start. Uh, um, they have to start antibiotics because the child's got schmutz. And I've always thought that that word schmutz is very helpful because it shows you that this idea of just a bit of clag on the X-ray, which you're sure if the child had a cough, it would probably move to somewhere else. It's probably just simple atelectasis, tiny bits of collapse of the lung that are just going to reinflate again. What we say is basically, if you think it's not bronchiolitis, or if you think it's bronchiolitis plus something else, then of course you can investigate. Um, so if you if the child's got a temperature of thirty nine five and seems to have respiratory sepsis, well, of course you can do a chest X ray, and of course you can start doing a full blood count and perhaps doing some eusinies and CRP and all of that sort of stuff. If you want to do that, but if you think that it's bronchiolitis, then it's a clinical diagnosis, and at that point you don't do any further testing. Okay. Now, you and I have seen, uh, uh, I suspect, a reasonable number of bronchiolitis seasons, and you, you and I kind of know what to do and not what to do. But I guess one of the great challenges in the emergency departments when you have people who are new who rotate around is making sure that they know what to do and more pertinently, I guess, what not to do. Um, which kind of was was the sort of lead into to doing this podcast was that you tweeted something of here's how we are going to try and make sure that everyone is doing the same thing and, and probably again everyone's 
not doing the same thing. What, what was that all about? Yeah, so um, you know, I've, I've developed our bronchiolitis guideline with lots and lots of helps from lots of colleagues over the years, and each year I sit and sort of try and refresh it. And the thing that really struck me this year is is how many sort of, how many sort of conflicts we set up within um, within our healthcare system, not deliberately but inadvertently. So, for example, you've got um, the parent, the nurse potentially a physiotherapist and sometimes a senior nurse we've got um we've got outreach nurses from our icu we've got our icu doctors we've got our um our uh, hospital at night on call doctors we've got our ward round doctors and they're all um they're they're all concerned to do the best they possibly can for the child obviously i mean that's why they get up out of bed to come to work obviously but we set them up into sort of a conflict. So you've got, say, for example, you've got a parent and the nurse are concerned about the child, and that's great. Um, and so you need to come and review the child. Or you've got a, um, a, a nurse who's not that experienced but thinks everything's okay, but you just want that child reviewed for reassurance, which is also completely reasonable. So then up rocks the doctor and say, thinks, well, I think everything's okay as well, but I kind of have just got to do something, haven't I? I've just got to, maybe I should just fiddle. Maybe I should just add something in. Maybe I should, maybe I should do something. Now, I, I, I had a conversation with Ian Sinner, who's a respiratory pediatrician in Alderhay, and um, uh, not in real life, obviously, I don't get out enough for that, but on, online. Um, and uh, he was talking about something they talked about called sitting on your hands. And, uh, and we came up with this idea, Time to Get Better, which is a sort of a really bad dad uh, um, dad joke pun, because basically you and I both know that the key thing in bronchiolitis is giving the child time to get better. The child gets better in spite of us, not because of us. And then uh, this idea in general that it's time for us to get better at doing bronchiolitis. And so this is a series of um, this is a care bundle, which is a series of ideas wrapped around the child that if we can deliver all these different things and give people the confidence that, OK, we don't need to escalate. We don't need to handle this child loads and do lots of tests and start lots of medicines. We we can we can be comfortable that the child is going to work a bit harder, that we can be comfortable that the child is tolerating some feeds and isn't just being hungry. And we can minimize the amount of additional oxygen and respiratory support we get then then we give the child time to get better and we can all talk the same language. And what sort of format does this care bundle take? Is it a, is it a physical thing? Is it an electronic thing? Um, so uh, it's basically, um, uh, it's a sort of a, uh, um, an A3 printed sheet laminated, which I have um, scattered various places around the hospital. Um, we've got a paediatric assessment unit, which is a 19-bed unit where um, 16 cubicles, and there's a copy of it in each cubicle. So I'm hoping that the parents are reading this and saying, Okay, I get that. Um, I get that. Why you've restricted my child's feeding? Actually, now I think my child's getting a bit better. So why can't we try a bit more? Why can't we get that nasogastric tube out? Because it says here that you can take the tube out as soon as it's not being used anymore, and so on. Okay, so it's it's aimed at parents as well as healthcare professionals. It's aimed at anybody who's involved in looking after the child. Yes, yeah, so parents, healthcare professionals, grannies, and um, you know, grannies coming in and visiting. Everybody needs to. You, you, 
like I said, the thing, the main thing is if we set up a conflict, then people feel it's necessarily to necessary to do something. And I'm keen to avoid that conflict and say, actually not doing something and watching and making sure that the baby is safe and supporting them. That's actually very important as well. So is that something that you've now rolled out immediately? Yep, that's up and running as at the moment um, in in our organisation. Um, uh, did the ward round earlier? A couple of cubicles. The uh, the, the the laminated posters seem to have gone missing, but hey, found another couple, stuck them up again. And are you going to sort of look back at the end of in spring, maybe, and sort of assess whether this has made a difference? And and if so, how are you going to measure that difference? That's a good question. So um, I'm a I'm not an academic. I don't have, um, even though I edit with uh, archives, I haven't got, uh, haven't ever been a PI or anything like that. So, I, I thought about doing this in a sort of a terrible, terribly sort of highfalutin academic way. But actually, the key thing for me was just attempting to improve the quality. Now, what, what we are going to try and do is. Um, we, we use this concept called micro audit. I don't know yeah. if you've come across it, but it's very, very small, very easy audits where you think, pick five or six items and just uh, put a tick or a cross over 10 observations so that then you can make a very easy percentage. And so we can look at really simple aspects of this and see whether we're achieving it. So you could look at the next 10 patients and say, did we manage to avoid doing a chest X-ray on this patient? Did we manage to avoid doing blood tests? Did we in a, in unnecessarily restrict fluids? And just go one or zero, tick or cross, and then say, okay, feed that back the next day on the ward round as a sort of this micro audit, and then say, okay, so why is it that we're doing so many chest X-rays? What's causing that? Is it a, is it part of our relationship with our emergency department? Are we not communicating this well enough with our our colleagues there, or have we have we got some unmet need that we're not understanding? So it's that sort of iterative approach that um, about implementing the the the, the guideline the, the the care bundle that we're looking at, actually assessing whether it um, saves us masses of money, uh, loads of time. Well, you know, I, I think if there was something that halved the length of stay of children with bronchiolitis, I think we'd already have guessed and, and worked it out by now. But for me, in our organisation, we have between I don't know two hundred to four hundred children a year come through as inpatients with bronchiolitis. So if I can shave off half an hour or an hour of all of their stays just get them out of hospital slightly sooner safely but slightly sooner that's that's a significant help and improvement to the uh, to, to the bed pressures that we'll face over the winter yeah and certainly i saw when you you tweeted this idea um actually there's, there's quite a strong and positive response to that can people access this or is this sort of specific to birmingham so um ab- absolutely i'm very happy to share this i don't feel any kind of um uh, any significant ego in it except you know obviously if you if you rip it all off i'd quite like you to say oh that birmingham women and children's hospital that's great you know um but um uh if people want to email me um ian wacone or one word at uh, nhs.net or that's that's also in the front of archive um uh, front of education and practice if you want to have a look there that's that's where my email address is very happy to share the link to um i've got it all in a google drive and you can download the um you can download the PA, pdf of our poster and uh, also i tend to sort of share some thoughts about how we implemented it as well um uh, about because uh, of course you know i'm 
I'm not doing this as a one man band. I've got loads of support from colleagues and um, my every iteration of the guideline is, is, is hugely reviewed, especially by my pediatric ICU colleagues who like to take a very close eye at any suggestions like this. But um, uh, obviously people need to understand that um, the suggestions that we make um, aren't I'm not nice. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, Cochrane. Therefore, they need to sort of think about. Okay, does that look rational and real to me? And do it on their own. Uh, you take on take on the um, the care bundle, not at their own risk, but actually, you know, not totally indemnifying well, me, but basically, uh, um, basically saying they don't think it's mad. Yeah, but I think you know the amount of response that that the tweet got suggests yeah. that there's clearly, a, you know, potential unmet need here. Yeah, yeah, it really felt like I was pushing against an open door. Actually, one of the one of the really interesting things in that um, I noticed, um, so I've this is a a, a a new thing that I spotted. Um, well, that I, I don't think I'm unique in spotting this, but I tend to think in 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 kind of if you think of a generation in medicine, say you think of a generation, you say, well, maybe ten years. Okay, so. The stuff that you and I know today, uh, it was different ten years ago, and 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 the guys who are ten years, the guy, uh, the guys and ladies who are ten years behind us are um, uh, sort of generationally different. And I've thought of wards like that, but what I realised in doing this was that actually, some of my most senior nurses uh, who are managing children through the night with bronchiolitis. They are veterans because they've done two or three years looking after children with bronchiolitis. So they're, for example, they're a hundred percent comfortable with high flow nasal cannula oxygen, and in fact, they're a little, in my opinion, a little too comfortable with it because we use it, I think, a little too generously, which is one of the other things that the the bundle attempts to to use. So actually, what was what's been really interesting to me is how do you. Um, when when you think that uh, management of bronchiolitis, if I've been doing this guideline iteratively for about 10 or 15 years now, actually I've gone through generations and generations of nurses. There's very few nurses who, who stick around in the same area for 10 years. And so actually it's there is this need to go out and continue to teach and go back and say, okay, so what is it we're doing here? Have we got the wrong idea? Have we gone down the wrong direction? I mean, the the thing that um, I liken it to is lumbar punctures. I don't know what your teams are like about doing lumbar punctures, but we go through phases. Sometimes you 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 have everybody getting a lumbar puncture. Sometimes you have barely any lumbar punctures done, or it's all um, every patient has has declined to have the lumbar puncture done. And you you kind of go through that cultural thing, and you have to keep on putting the effort in. And so that's one of the things that I've really that's really struck me here is that actually a lot of the newest nurses are being taught by three-year veterans yeah and I, I have to remember that and go and be kind and say yes you do know a lot about bronchiolitis but actually more broadly indeed than that we need to be thinking about this is the genuine evidence and so this is what we're going to try this year okay um so will you be publishing any of your sort of audits locally or maybe on social media do you think or just to sort of see how it's got on yeah I'll, so i hope to be able to give some feedback as you say i had a lot of interest i've probably shared it with 10 or 15 units around the uk who've politely asked for um copies of it um and hopefully if people do audit it locally they'll share their data as uh, with me as well I've, I've asked them to um if they wouldn't mind um so hopefully i'll, I'll be able to give some information and some feedback and um 
and iteratively improve the uh, the bundle for again for next year. Perfect. Um, well, Ian, that's fascinating, and I really look forward to seeing how that that's gone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.